How do people actually think about pastors and then the dangers of the hurried life? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon, January the 29th. We're starting to get towards the end of January, February, just around the corner. Hopefully you had yourself a great weekend. We got lots to talk about today, including a fascinating article of Christianity Today uh, about whether or not people have positive opinions of pastors. That one is going to get dicey, I believe. And also the hurried life, some words from Tim Keller, lots of great stuff on the show today. But I want to start talking about the weekend, start talking about what happened in my life this weekend and just kind of. Uh, yeah, getting ready for the next week. As many of you know, if you listen to the show, my wife and my daughter left town this weekend. My daughter is going to be gone overseas studying abroad for four months. And so the way we decided to do this was that my wife and her uh, added a trip in the front end. They flew overnight yesterday until this morning to Morocco, which was crazy. And then they're going to have a week-long adventure there. Then my wife will fly with my daughter to where she will be spending the semester. And my wife will fly home next week. All crazy. Like, this isn't stuff that my family does. And so uh, really excited for my wife and my daughter to be able to have this adventure. It's a little weird to be left back home. I've got uh, my younger daughter and my son. So it's just, you know, they're just kind of going to school. But uh Man, I'm I'm telling you, besides the travel and them getting ready, we just had a really sweet time with my 20-year-old daughter. So because she's studying abroad, part of what that meant is she's a little bit off on the schedule of what she would normally be in college. So normally in college, she would have gone back to school two or three weeks ago. But instead, she had a longer Christmas break all the way till January the 28th, obviously. So she was home for like six weeks. And I love it. Having the whole family together, being together is is just so sweet. And but there was always this imminent like, ah, it's coming. She's leaving for four months because you get the longer time here. But then you're like, I know she's not going to be home until May 28th and all of that. And so uh, we did lots of like family stuff, especially this weekend. You might remember over Christmas break way back right around New Year's, we went to Florida. Well, one of the reasons we went to Florida as a family is because we knew her gone for so long, we wouldn't be doing anything like that, say this spring or into the early summer. And so that's why we did that. But then as as it got closer and closer, uh, you know, this weekend, Friday night, we went out for family dinner to Red Robin. And uh, we've always loved to go to Red Robin since the kids were little. So I was like, let's do Red Robin. So we had a family dinner and then we came home and watched movies and this and that. And then Saturday came along uh, and it was like, hey, everybody, make sure you're home. We're going to do family day. Uh, we went to Top Golf. We did lots of fun stuff together. We had dinner at home. Uh, played, you know, video games, looked at pictures, you know, a lot of sweet family time and they packed up some more, but you just knew Sunday was coming and it was a little different because I wasn't going to drive into the airport because literally they had to be picked up while church was going on. And so I stayed home a little longer in the morning 
got up early with my wife and daughter. Uh, my, Madeline and I went for a walk. But like, I don't get emotional with my daughter leaving ever since when she first went to college. When she first went to college, uh, I knew it was coming. Uh, I was excited for her, but I, I was a wreck. And sure enough, and when the moment came to say goodbye to her at college, the very first time I lost it, the rest of the family lost it. Madeline lost it. A lot of emotions. Many of you have dropped your kids off at college. You know what that looks like. But every time she has left for school since, totally fine. Like, right? Going up to Holland, Michigan, you're there. We'll see you. All that kind of stuff. Well, this time, her leaving four months, I could feel it again. Like, I knew it was coming. And so even yesterday morning as we went for a walk or we did some other stuff, I could feel that kind of lump in the throat. I was trying every technique I could uh, not to lose it. And then the time came I needed to go to church. She needed to go. Uh, they needed to continue to get ready and eventually go while I was at church. Uh, and so I went to hug her. And I am man enough to admit this. I lost it. And I didn't see it coming. I was like, Madeline, I'm so happy for you. I'm so excited. But, you know, it's hard to say goodbye to you. And that caused her to start crying, my wife to start crying. We laughed. I'm like, I'm really sorry. And it's one of these things that you then leave and five to 10 minutes later, you're fine. Right. But it just needed to come. Uh, Carrie said that made everybody else more emotional in the morning. I jokingly apologized. And away they went. Now, their flight was Chicago to Newark, Newark uh, to Zurich, Zurich to Marrakesh, Morocco. And in my heart, I was like, for some reason, the dicey one with the short layover was just Chicago to Newark. But if you knew if you missed that flight to Newark, uh, if you missed that flight from Newark to Zurich, it was going to throw everything off. And sure enough, it was delayed. We're watching it. I'm texting with my wife, this and that. And they finally got to Newark with not much time to spare. And the people were like, hey, if you have a connection, let those people up first. There was a bunch of them running to this flight. They ran and they made it. So uh, then they flew to Zurich and flew to Marrakesh all without incident. And uh, last I talked to them over WhatsApp, which was really strange because it's a seven hour time difference. Uh, so you're always having to do like, where are you at right now? What time is it? What's going on? Uh, we were able to talk earlier today and they're exploring the city and on their adventure. So we're, I'm home with the other two doing kind of normal life. And uh, my wife, Carrie, and my adult oldest daughter, Madeline, are off on their adventure. So if you're the praying type, I'd love for you to uh, offer up prayers for them as they are gone. And for me as a single father. So that is something. Also yesterday... Uh, football, football, football. I came home from church. I was mentally tired, not just from church, but from crying when my daughter left and the emotion of that. And I did nothing but sit on the couch and watch those two football games yesterday. Two fantastic football games. Uh, we've now got our Super Bowl, going to be the Chiefs and the 49ers. But let me tell you what, if you are a Ravens fan yesterday was difficult. If you're a Detroit Lions fan, yesterday was excruciating because they were up 24 to seven. Uh, and then they just made mistake after mistake. It felt like a young team with the pressure. The coach, I think, made some boneheaded choices to I know it's his his style, but he didn't kick the field goals when he could have gone up three scores or could have tied the game later. 
Oh, for the history of the Detroit Lions to lose the way they did yesterday was brutal. I mean, I think they'll be back, but you just never know. You don't know if anyone will actually be back. You don't know. Uh, And so that was brutal. But um, it reminded me of our love for sports and how much we invest in our sports teams, how much we invest in their uh, winning or losing. And, uh, you know, like I said, my daughter goes to school. Uh, in uh, Holland, Michigan, when she's at school. Obviously, I just told you she's not now, but when she's in school. And so to watch that was just tough. It really was tough uh, knowing a lot of her friends and their families who we got to know were so excited to uh, get that game, see if the Lions could get to the Super Bowl. And it seemed like they were in the Super Bowl and then they were not. Uh, so if you're a Lions fan out there, feeling bad for you, but you did have a fantastic season. And now we got the Super Bowl. Coming up in two weeks, it is the San Francisco 49ers against the Taylor Swifts. And we're going to get a lot of Taylor Swift. We're going to get a lot of that going into this. And I love it. It's all wonderful. So hopefully you had a great weekend. Mine was full of emotions, full of goodbyes. And now life is back to normal. Uh, Coming up next, what do people think about pastors? You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Monday morning or a Monday afternoon. I'll tell you what, friends, my life is upside down with, I know people are used to their spouses traveling or their kids going, but so much has happened this week that that I just am upside down, not sleeping well. And so when I refer to it as the morning, it's the evening. When I refer to the evening, it's the morning. Who knows anymore? But good Monday afternoon and evening. Hopefully you're doing well. We're glad to have you with us. Go get the podcast, by the way, if you miss any of the show today. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Kate Shelnut posted a bunch from Christianity Today this week about um, clergy and public trust. What is the public trust of clergy? Now, this is a very broad question, but as a pastor, I found myself feeling very interested in this. And regularly, uh, pastor credibility has been high. In the early, late 18, uh, 18, in the late 1980s, it was up just below 70% in the high 60s of people who thought that clergy have high or very high levels of honesty and ethics. So what is the public trust? Now, in the last decades, we've had, uh, you know, the Catholic church clergy scandals. We've had the many mega church scandals. We've had lots of, you have uh, pastors kind of becoming very political. We've had all of this. So you would expect it to go down and uh, spoiler alert, it absolutely has. Uh, It says public trust in clergy falls to an all-time low, a decline apparently accelerating after 2010. So, like I said, it was – they kind of start this around 1980, and it looks like from their bar graph or their line graph – 
the late 1980s, it was at its highest, almost 70 percent. Back around 2000, it peaked again, about 65 percent. I want you to think to yourself right now, what do you think it is now? If in the year 2000, it was at about 65 percent. To the specific percentage of Americans who say clergy have high or very high levels of honesty and ethics, what do you think it is? I'll give you a second to think about it. Right now, it has a precipitous decline to where right now, where the year 2000, it was at about 65%. Right now, it is a shade over 30%. That's right. You heard that correctly. 30% of Americans surveyed say clergy have high or very high levels of honesty and ethics. There's a couple other things to point out from here. It says this uh, previous polling has shown that people tend to trust their own pastor more than pastors overall. According to Barna research, nearly two thirds of Americans have a very positive opinion of a pastor. They have a personal connection with compared to a quarter who said the same thing about pastors in general. So a quarter to a third said they had a high view of pastors in general, but 66% nearly two thirds of Americans have a very positive opinion of a pastor. They have a personal connection with. Here's some other interesting parts from this article. Views of pastors vary by generation. Uh, You would expect the younger, everything you read would tell you younger generations have a uh, more cynical view. Oh, but you would be wrong. Elder millennials and Gen X are the most cynical. Fewer than a quarter of people between the ages of 35 and 54 have a positive view of clergy ethics compared to 38% of older Americans and 30% of those under 35. Positive perception of clergy among young people actually jumped by 10 percentage points compared to 2022. So let's take the silver lining from here. And say this, that it's getting actually better than what it was before for younger generations. But people in my generation and a little bit older than me are getting more cynical. So what do we do with that? This is the grand uh, question. When you get things, uh, statistics uh, and all of this. The obvious question is always, what do you do with that? What do you do with these statistics? So I would say a couple different takeaways. Uh, Don't believe the press right now that the younger generations are the cynical ones. I don't think they are. Instead, it appears to be my generation, 38 to 54. Why would that be? Well, uh, We are more cynical now in general than when we were in our 20s. But also, we've grown up in the time, in the season of life, we've grown up in the Catholic Church clergy sex abuse scandal, the stuff going on in the SBC, uh, the failures of the Bill Hybels of the world and others. We were the ones who have grown up with this. 
And that shapes you. That makes you cynical. I also think we are more of a cynical generation in general. We are of the age where we have seen uh, people in our in our sphere or our parents sphere um, become ultra political. And we you know, that can make you cynical about the church. And so I would say that's the first thing. Know where the actual cynicism is. Secondly, I would say this. Um, personal relationship matters. People tend to trust their own pastor more than pastors overall by a lot. The fact that two thirds of Americans have a, quote, very positive opinion of a pastor they have a personal connection with says that the office of pastor might have some uh, issues right now, some PR but that once people get to know specific pastors, once people get to know their own pastor, once people interact, that that goes up. That's a great sign. And to pastors out there, I would suggest this. Lean into the people in your church. Lean into the people in your sphere. Lean into the people that you have the personal connection with. And if you're not a pastor out there, I would say this, get to know the pastor of your church. Don't talk about pastors as if they are some monolithic thing. All pastors are this, all pastors are this. No, get to know a pastor at your church. Take them out for coffee. Because what this uh, statistics tell us is that the more you get to know your pastor, the more positive the experience, the more positive the feeling. And that's great because pastoring is done on a personal level. It's hard to shepherd from Twitter. It's hard to shepherd from, you know, these high level. It's we shepherd one-on-one across the table, one to a few. And that's important to remember. Fascinating stuff over there, Christianity Today. Coming up next, want to talk about the hurried life, including some audio from an old friend. Going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So nice to have you with us on a Monday evening as we are almost to the end of January. Hope you had a great day at church tomorrow. You enjoyed some relaxation. Hopefully you watched some football or did something else that's life-giving and uh, didn't have to be out in that mess of melting snow and everything else that we have going on. Now, one of the goals of a weekend, I know it doesn't play out this way, but one of the goals of the weekend is to get some relaxation time, to get off the grind, to get off the hamster wheel. Now, that doesn't happen often for us because of our phones and computers. We're always accessible. And so that does become difficult. But I want to talk about something called the hurried life and busyness, because not only is busyness something that uh, plagues us in our culture, I actually think it's a badge of honor. Uh, How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Because that makes us feel important. We don't want to look at people when they say, how are we doing? And go, I got nothing going on. But then the busyness leads to the hurried life. And the hurried life is antithetical 
to things like Sabbath and rest that become, quite frankly, biblical commands and things that we even see Jesus doing, right? When we think about the hurried life, we go, uh, my mind, and when I think about the Bible and what it has to say is, uh, if anybody could have lived the hurried life, it's Jesus. Jesus could have and should have lived a hurried life. But he didn't. He got a way to pray. He prioritized things like prayer and rest and connecting with his father. And so we look at Jesus's life and we are challenged. I want to play some audio for you uh, here. This is from uh, the Dave Ramsey kind of um, Ramsey Solutions Twitter account, somebody who works on their staff. He's going to quote something, somebody that we know very well here on The Common Good. Uh, let's listen to this short clip. As my friend Ian Simkin says, if busyness is your drug, rest will feel like stress. I don't have time. I have this job to do and this list to do, and I will get through the list, and everyone has to eat, and all the dishes have to be done, and all of this has to be done. And what all of those tasks, which do have to get done, they become a way to not feel. Mm -hmm. And they become an addiction. Mm. Because they allow me to be busy instead of to experience what I'm actually feeling about all this stuff. He quotes our old friend Ian Simpkins. Now, Ian is now pastoring down in the Nashville area, which is where uh, Dave Ramsey, where Ramsey Solutions is. But he quotes Ian Simpkins, and Ian used to say this. If you don't know Ian Simpkins, Ian was my first co-host for the first two years of the existence of The Common Good. Ian was my co-host before he moved down to Nashville, Tennessee. But Ian said this, uh, and this was who this guy was quoting, if busyness is your drug, rest will feel like stress. If busyness is your drug, rest will feel like stress. You like, right, I, I don't have time. I have a job. I have a to-do list. I have so much I have to do. I'm so busy. How am I supposed to get all of this done and rest? And what happens is, is that busyness actually becomes our idol. Busyness becomes an idol. If I'm not busy, I'm not important. If I'm not busy, people will think I'm lazy, that I'm not essential. If I'm not essential, I'm not important. This is what made COVID, amongst other things, so difficult for many of us. It took away our identity. My identity is in not in who I am, but what I can do, how busy I can be. And if our identity is in what we can do, then rest wars at our identity. However, if our identity is in Jesus, if our identity is in who he says that I am, rather than what I can do, if my identity is in who that I, who I am, and that's where I get my worth, then I can rest. I can Sabbath. I can disconnect. Because even if I'm not as productive as I was or as productive as somebody else, it doesn't change who I am in Christ. But busyness, as Ian said here, can be like a drug. If busyness is a value, is a drug, 
is where we get our identity, then rest works against it. And we will never do it because it's stressful to rest. What am I not doing? Somebody else is getting ahead. There you go. Jim Putman, uh, pastor out west somewhere, I believe in Idaho. He wrote this on Twitter, actually, kind of the same topic. He said, a hurried life. That's where we're always busy, 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 busy. A hurried life leads to lack of relationship with God and others. Hurried also hinders our ability to serve God. All of those require time. Real relationships require time and honesty. Really working with God to help others and make disciples requires more than a flyby. That's such a good word. A hurried life leads to lack of relationship with God and others. Why? Because if Jesus disconnected and spent long amounts of time in prayer and Sabbath with his father, then why do we think that our relationships with God don't require similar types of time and Sabbath and rest? Be still and know that I am God. Hurried life also hinders our ability to serve God. It hinders our relationships. Do you ever feel like you only have shallow relationships? One of the reasons might be hurry. It might be busyness that you don't have in your mind the time to invest in other people. This is not a call to laziness. The opposite of hurried and busy is not lazy. The opposite of hurried and busy I would say is right priorities. It's uh, valuing what God values. It's Sabbath, right? So many of us read the Sabbath texts of the Old and New Testament and think of them uh, as just barriers and burden. Thank goodness in the New Testament, we don't have to do that anymore. But Jesus never said, don't Sabbath. But instead, he points to Sabbath rest as opportunity and doorway. Be still and know that I am God is invitation. But then the opposite's got to be true. Lack of stillness, lack of knowledge of God. So how do you do with rest? How do you do with not being hurried? How do you with, do with prioritizing seasons for yourself, for your relationship with God? Or are you just that person who's too busy to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time with your family, to spend time with the people who are really important? Hurried life, busy life works against having a real relationship with God. It works against investing in ministry. It works against having real relationships. And until we realize that, until we repent of the idol of busyness and hurriedness, we will keep running that hamster wheel thinking that that's where our identity lies. Hard questions because our culture runs so different, but it's something that we need to get right. <clears throat> Coming up next. A hugely important words from the account of Tim Keller, right? He passed away earlier in 2023, but his son will still tweet at his Twitter account things that Tim Keller wrote or Tim Keller said that Tim Keller preached. And it's like this tre treasure trove 
uh, of depth, of theology and practicalness of faith that is still kind of living beyond Tim Keller. So we're going to read one of those that I saw over the weekend next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. It is great to have you with us today on a Monday afternoon. If you've missed any of our show today, go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast, just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Now, one of the things that we've always tried to do on this show is to introduce you to people that we think you should read, you should listen to, you should follow on Twitter and other social media accounts. And one of those people for us on The Common Good has always been Tim Keller. Tim Keller is the founder of Redeemer Church in New York City. Uh, And then after he moved on from kind of daily pastoring, he did a lot with the Gospel Coalition, with Redeemer City to City, and just preaching and teaching and conference speaking and writing prolifically. The amazing thing about Tim Keller is he has written so many influential books, right? So many important books, the ones that come to mind, Counterfeit God, about the work he does with uh, about idol worship in our day, Uh, Counterfeit God, Uh, his book on apologetics, just kind of answering the really hard questions that we all have, a hugely important work. Uh, him and his wife wrote a marriage book. And Tim Keller has written it called The Meaning of Marriage. Keller has written so many important books. Yet the amazing thing about Tim Keller is that he never wrote his first book until he was in his 50s. So many people now write in their 20s or their 30s thinking they have something to say. And that's fine. But the fact that Tim Keller, of all people, didn't write until he was in his 50s um, is so important. I think it tells us something about his humility. Uh, And so uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to stuff Tim Keller has preached. Read any Tim Keller book you can get your, your arms on. He wrote one on preaching that pastors should read. Uh, Tim Keller died in 2023 after a a pretty lengthy battle with cancer. Uh, But one of the ways that his ministry and his influence carries on is that his son, Michael Keller, continues to post on Tim Keller's uh, Twitter account at Tim Keller NYC. It now says Timothy Keller and then in parentheses 1950 to 2023 so that you know he's passed on. And I really appreciate this Twitter account. I'd encourage you to go follow it. But at this Twitter account, Tim Keller, uh, his son posted former thing, uh, uh, something that Tim Keller wrote many years ago. That says this. Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. What do you think about that? So there's a very important element to this for us, for our understanding, and that's to define the word gospel. Because we understand who Christians are. We understand who non-Christians are. But what's the gospel? Well, the gospel, um, rightly translated, just means good news. 
It was the proclamation of good news. And when used in a uh, in a biblical concept, it is the proclamation of the good news of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the proclamation of the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the proclamation of the good news uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It's the proclamation of the forgiveness, the grace the hope, the purpose, and the life that we have in Christ and Christ alone. It's the proclamation of the good news uh, that the wages of sin is death, but that the good, but, but that the uh, free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But here's what Tim Keller is getting at. Many of us treat that good news as the beginning of the Christian life. Many of us treat the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ as the start, as kind of the starting line. Uh, This is the entryway into Christianity. But then as you kind of mature in the faith, you mature past that good, past that beginning news. And you move on to deeper things of the faith. And so you could begin to think of the gospel as the start, as the beginning, as the entryway, as the doorway into the faith. But friends, Tim Keller here, and I would completely agree with him to say that to see the gospel that way is to see it incorrectly. But that the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian faith. It's the whole journey. That when I've been a Christian for 50, 60 years, I still desperately need the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I'm still a sinner in need of that grace. I have not gotten to the point now by then where my own self-righteousness saves me. But in fact, by the time I get to that many years, I should be even more understanding, even more uh, uh, having a greater depth of knowledge of my need for Jesus. That the entire purpose of life becomes to know Jesus and to make him known, to know his good news. That Hebrews chapter 12, I just am preaching on this uh, in our church, but that Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, where we read about the, the race, run the race with perseverance, eyes fixed on Jesus, that there never comes a time in our life where our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news at the start, in the middle, and in the end. And so, therefore, he is right. Uh, He is right that Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do because we never outlive and outgrow the grace of Jesus. We never outgrow our need for it. And so the word of warning here is that if you do find yourself to the point where you think the gospel is for other people, that the gospel is for less mature Christians than you, then you're off course. 
You're the older son in the prodigal son story. But that instead, the longer I'm a Christian, the more in awe I should be. That God loves me so much that he sent Jesus. And the more in awe that we should be that we still desperately need that good news. So great. This encapsulizes so much of Tim Keller's ministry. That Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. And my question for you is simply this. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that to be true? Thankful for Tim Keller and his good works throughout his life. Well, it's been a great day. Thanks for spending time with us today. And come join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. Until then, we hope that you have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.